Hello and welcome to How Things Grow. How Things Grow tells the stories of the people who help companies, technologies and economic systems take off. Each episode features an interview with one of the leading growth practitioners, entrepreneurs or experts in the world today. We dive into the stories of these folks, we talk about origins, early victories, strokes of luck, trusts of failure and much much more to deconstruct many of the things they do to drive dramatic growth for their companies and technologies. How Things Grow is presented by me, Shamant Rao, the CEO of the mobile user acquisition firm Rocketship HQ. My guest today is John Hook, the CRO of Huma Games, the publishers behind hit hypercasual games like Tower Color, Tiny Cars, Balls vs. Lasers, and many, many more. John has held a myriad of roles in mobile marketing before Omer, including being a co-founder of the mobile marketing agency Odyssey Mobile, the head of mobile and digital investment at Mediacom, and VP EMEA for brand and agencies at Ad Colony. In today's interview, we dive into the fascinating world of hyper-casual games. If you have even casually followed the app stores over the last few years, you will have seen seemingly simplistic games like Helix Jump, Tiny Cars, and many, many others at the top of the app store charts. What is as astounding as these games is ascent is their staying power. In this interview, John talks about the rise of the hypercasual phenomenon, the drivers and forces powering it, what lies ahead, and offers some fascinating insights into one of the more unexpected occupants of the app stores today. Hey everyone, I'm very excited to welcome to How Things Grow, John Hook, the CRO of Huma Games. John, welcome to How Things Grow. Thanks, thanks for having me. Absolutely, and this is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time. As background for some of our listeners, as of this weekend, the top five games on the iTunes App Store included Call of Duty, Icing on the Cake, Mario Kart Tour, Drop and Smash, Draw Race. So two proven IPs that have had decades of investment and three that seem almost frivolous in their nature. And this, of course, is the phenomenon, hyper-casual, that we're here to talk about today. And John is among the best people to talk about hyper-casual just because he's been in so deep and has worked on so many games that have such huge, huge hits. So John, to start off, tell us what hyper-casual is as a genre of games. I always think it's a good question, and I'll tell you why. Because if you say hyper-casual to most people outside of hyper-casual, they'll think of something like Flappy Bird, or it'll conjure up an image of you know people in their bedroom making really low-quality games that uh, maybe hit the charts for a few days and disappear. But I think there's two ways to look at what hypercasual is. First, by the audience type. So we're talking about like mass market games. Audience, they they don't really identify as gamers versus say you know more like midcore or hardcore gamers. And as a result, it is confusing because if you look at the app store, hypercasual isn't yet an app store category. Um, you know, it permeates multiple categories: puzzle, casual, action, racing. 
But most games are usually classed as either arcade or casual. So if you look at your phone, I suspect there probably is a hyper casual game on that. The reference point I always give is, is Netflix. For me, hyper casual is Netflix. Yeah. You, know, you, you log in and whatever you want to watch, there is a great piece of content, i.e. a hyper casual game for you. But of course, outside of the audience, there are certain ways that you can spot a hyper casual game. So, you know, by the publisher, there are some some really top publishers in hyper casual games, but also by the game mechanic and gameplay. So typically in hyper casual, we talk about a one tap game. You'll hear the word snack games. It needs to be really easy to understand. I call it the nan test. So if my if my nan can play one of our games and understand it within two seconds, that's really easy to understand uh, really easy to play and non-punitive so in no way do you feel like you're being punished for not succeeding and you'll right. see the hyper casual games it's so adaptive now if you don't pass a level and you play it again the level won't be the same It'll be even easier because it wants you to succeed and it's a game that everyone can play so the, the hit recipe is snackable youtubeable nice and straightforward punitive so that makes sense if you think about the market that you're building these games for that aren't gamers it all fits yeah. in yeah and i think the one word that you use that was interesting to me that i'd like to dig into further down this interview is non-punitive but i will also point out that the concept of uh, hyper casual games as you described them isn't radically new a lot of the arcade games of the 70s and 80s had mechanics that we would come to identify as hypercasual in today's world. Space Invaders, Tetris, and Pong are all games that I remember playing and that those all seem to have a lot of similarities to games that we would think of as hypercasual today. Yet, the first wave of mobile games, let's say 2008 to 2015, did not have these games. So with your understanding, why do you think these games were absent in that first wave and what precipitated the ascent of hypercasual after 2015 everyone if you think back has got that kind of nostalgic memory of uh, the earliest hypercasual games you know from here it's actually like snake on the nokia 3310 that kind of yeah. single tap pro yeah. mechanic easy to play to your question if we if we take that point these games have always been around what is it that's really accelerated this in in recent years so i think there's the first thing for me is the human element so what i mean by that is with smartphones they've democratized gaming so if you think this classic stereotype of you know early on like there's pc gamers and what we just discussed about the hyper casual audience are not gamers well with, with your smartphone, you remove that barrier, that stereotype of, well, no, I, I am a gamer. I've got my console, I've got my PC, I've all got my equipment around it. I'm just a mobile phone owner. So I, I think that coupled with the other simple human trend that our attention span is decreasing. You know, you hear yeah. stats of like 10 seconds, seven seconds is the average length of human attention. Yeah. So look at the rise of Facebook, Instagram, now TikTok, Snapchat, we're being conditioned to consume content in bite-sized forms. Yeah. So if you put those two elements together, it's no surprise that hyper-casual has exploded because it just fits into human nature. Most yeah. people on the planet have a smartphone. Everyone's got short attention spans. They're expecting yeah. short-form, snackable, yeah. content. Um, and hyper-casual to tick that box. So for me, the second part is... 
it's the technology advancements. And I know we're going to touch on this, so I won't go into too much detail, but yeah. I think that just the speed of innovation in game design, uh, UA monetization that have enabled these mass market games to ensure that the economics now work, that you can advertise and acquire so many users and run a very profitable business. So for me, it's the kind of simple maths that we'll talk into around sort of IPMs and LTV. But I think some of these great kind of startups that are powering the hyper-casual industry combined with the kind of human element and democratization of gaming that have just seen this explosion of hyper-casual. Sure. And... Um sounds like in many ways the last couple of years have brought forth quite the perfect storm in that there's been a large-scale proliferation of smartphones and people have been more and more open to snackable bite-sized experiences and uh, that's the wave that hypercasual has been quite on top of. John, we've talked about how Hypercasual has quite taken over the app stores, certainly, and in very many respects, public imagination, just because they're so front and center in the app store. Can you give a sense of how big the market is? Are there numbers you can share about how much hypercasual games have proliferated our phones today? So, if we go back to what we just discussed about hypercasual being a mass market commodity, quite simply, you're talking a local addressable market of anyone that owns a smartphone. So you're talking about billions of people. It's incredible. Yeah. If we actually talk about the reality of where we are right now, so the hyper-casual industry is estimated to have a value of around about $2.5 billion in, in 2019. Mm-hmm. In terms of users, I've seen some great stats from Tengen who are saying that in 2019 we'll hit 860 million monthly active users. Um, so that's up 68% on 2018, where it was 510 million. But if you look at the speed of growth in three years, if we go back to 2016, that number of MAU tangent recorded as 65 million. So in three years, to get from 65 million to 860 million, that's over a thousand percent growth in three years. It's incredible. Again, it is a global audience. So one market of real interest right now to all hyper-casual developers and publishers is China, roughly according to Appani. So 30% of all games downloaded in China are hyper-casual games already. Yeah. Um, and I believe that figure will be close to 50% in the next couple of years. It's already, for people that don't work in hyper-casual, these figures are quite astounding when you hear these kind of figures. And I think another important fact in terms of market size, which is really key, so when we look at our games, uh, OMA games, we, we see a rough 50-50 split of, between male and female. And that really surprises a lot of people. Again, coming back to this stereotype of gaming being very male-dominated, it's actually slightly skewed in favour of uh, female to male. So that's a really important point. It's not just sort of total addressable smartphone orders that are male age 18 to 44. I think that gives you a size of where the industry is at and the fact that it's still growing exponentially in some areas. And in some countries, uh, and we'll talk about this a bit later, specifically China, hypercasual is still just in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are humongous numbers. And you said a lot of hypercasual games have an MAU right now of 860 million. So by that comparison, more people play hypercasual games than are active on some of the social networks, more than Twitter and Snapchat, certainly. So that's a very, very humongous stat. 
as is the growth rate that you just alluded to. I'm curious though, in your background, you ran an agency a couple of years ago, you worked in ad sales. When did you see that hyper-casual was a thing? It could be the huge force that it is today. And what brought you to hyper-casual? It's an interesting question when I kind of look back and we've already talked about the kind of nostalgia of Tetris and yeah. uh, Snake on the Nokia. So it's, it's kind of been this thing that's always been there. It's just never had this classification. Yeah. So you've obviously had the rise of gaming, but more if I think about it from an ad perspective and particularly brands, I spent a lot of time working with brands, helping them understand gaming. But the kind of default was kind of the, the great team at sort of King, now Activision with sort of Candy Crush, who were kind of leading the charge on trying to really bring brands into gaming and help them understand. But I, I guess at Ad Colony where when you start seeing sort of new names, new developer, new publisher names, um, driving crazy volumes in terms of uh, like impressions, that's when you start paying attention and doing your homework on, right, who are these people? When you see more and more of them, that's when you start to realize that there's something very exciting happening here under the surface. And, and I think the other thing that really struck me from the kind of supply side, when I look at the analogies of how like a lot of the raw and video guys operate in a, in a network, every impression has a value. So if one game doesn't work, it doesn't matter. The, the platform will optimize. And what I started to see is it's a very similar way of thinking in the way that the hyper casual world works exactly the same that every impression, every user has a potential value. So I actually saw there were some real similarities between working on businesses like Ad Colony and actually the way Hypercasual was functioning. And also the fact that a lot of what happens in Hypercasual is really led by data. Um, and I really like that because having spent a lot of time agency side, I've been very lucky to work with some incredible planners and creative thinkers. And what I learned from my agency days is, is even then, there is a lot of great thinking and tapping into human emotion, but a lot of it was still grounded in data and insight. Yeah. And when I look at what's happening in hypercasual, that is still true for hypercasual. There's no real different. Yes, we can get excited about a game or we see a prototype, but really it does come down to what the data says. And if the data isn't telling us that this could succeed, then we don't move forward. So actually when I, kind of looked at this before talking to you today I, I think working you know in an agency and spending a lot of time um, and always training under some great planners has really helped train my brain for working in hypercasual sure so it sounds like you were looking at this data from publishers that were emerging and growing and really exploding in impression volume and that started to tell you that look hypercasual could be a thing you were grounded in the kind of data working on the agency side in the past so that clued you in. I'm also curious though, did you wonder at the time, is this just a fad? Are there all these publishers that are exploding in volume that are buying up massive amounts of ad inventory, but is this another boom and bust thing that is gonna happen? Did that cross your mind at any point? Yeah, I mean, of course, if you look at it within a certain time frame, 
you can then start thinking, oh, this is just a kind of boom. But if you look back at the context that we're thinking and look at that broader picture, yeah. then it doesn't look so much like a short-term trend. It actually, yeah. if you go back to the early days, this has been something that has just been building, evolving with consumer behavior. Then you've had the advances in technology. And then, you know, when you get, there's, there's a great uh, investor community within gaming, some great early stage funds, but you know, when, when you get Goldman Sachs investing $200 million into Voodoo, I, I think, one, it's a great validation of what the team of Voodoo are doing, but it really put hypercasual on the map um, from an investment community. I had a lot of friends at VCs calling me up saying, like, what's going on? Who is this? Who are Voodoo? Who are hypercasual? And for me, that I find that really interesting because it tells me, um, obviously, you work in gaming and you get quite closed off to this because you just you just know it's going to be big you work in it every day but to the outside world you do forget how gaming is still perceived yeah. as really a kind of a main investment channel a main channel that brands should be in and to me that's crazy so i genuinely believe that was a big tipping point certainly for hyper casual with sure. that money from goldman pouring in sure and of course the data continues to show that consistent growth of hyper casual I'm curious though, as you transitioned into hypercasual, what were some of the things you had to unlearn and what were some of the things you had to learn as you started to work on a completely new category, completely new genre at the time? Well, I think things that I've always applied, no matter what role I've been in from agency side to on the supply side to kind of launching startups, I think it's just a blank sheet of paper. There's always going to be things that you can bring with you, but when you create a new op a new opportunity, you should be always open to what can I learn, how can I do things differently. So that applied when I started in hypercasual. I was really excited about the opportunity to work with the kind of great team of entrepreneurs that are behind Omer um, to bring some skills that I developed over the years, but also just learn something completely new. Um, and I guess the the biggest change. Um, I mean, we spoke earlier about kind of data-driven kind of planning from my agency days. But I, I guess in hypercasual and certainly the, the team at OMA, and we literally don't do anything unless there is data to back it up. So this could be from just a simple playable ad. It could be game design. It could be big data or campaign optimization. So I, I think just almost letting go of that um, like emotional side of your brain that exists and trying to just switch that off and, and purely just operating in a rational way because yeah. that, that is how you succeed in, in hypercasual. There's yeah. some other practical elements that more specific to hypercasual. So things like, yeah. um, you know, the marketing level, like user acquisition channels. So obviously Facebook, Google, very dominant in other areas of gaming, but actually surprisingly in hypercasual, there are yeah. other UA channels that perform more effectively than Facebook and Google. So learning to work more deeply with those partners as we release yeah. more games. Um, the same in terms of technology providers. Um, again, it's great conferences in the UA world and always enjoy listening to people, not just in gaming, but the non-gaming world to understand their tech stack. But again, because of the economics of hypercasual are very different, um, so heavily ad-based, there's been some really fantastic kind of startups and, and growing technology partners that we've started to work with that until I worked in hypercasual, I hadn't done a lot of work with. Yeah. Um, and also from a kind of personnel team structure perspective. So for example, in hypercasual, UA and monetization, we don't have separate teams. That is the same person because we need right. to have that granular view 
um, tying kind of sort of user installs, user activity with revenue. So again, that was a little different. There's friends in other categories that have got completely separate um, gaming, user acquisition and monetization teams. Yeah. So there, there are some things that are totally different and you have to learn pretty quickly. But yeah. I think if you've operated an environment that is, so a lot of people that we're hiring for UA monetization are coming from, say, um, you know, investment banks, analysts. I think if you have a data analytical brain, hypercasual is something um, from a marketing perspective that is definitely something you should be looking at. Sure. And it's interesting how you spoke of how every decision you make is grounded in data. And I'm very curious to dig into that because if you read interviews of game designers or if you talk to game designers in the conventional sense, like people who had traditional conventional game design backgrounds, they speak a lot about how the story arc is important, how narratives are important, how emotion is so important. And if anything, the other two games in the top five that I alluded to, Call of Duty and Mario Kart Tour, I imagine they both lean very, very heavily on a lot of these emotional elements, right? And yet I've also heard, much like you said, that game design does not matter in hyper-casual. Can you elaborate on what that means, if that's a sentiment you agree with, right? Uh, and why game design in the conventional sense not mattering is actually very important for hyper-casual? Sure. So I'd say in the early days, not the 90s, but let's go back a couple of years, I would say that was kind of correct. That's how hypercasual worked. It was all about market potential over game design, i.e. a tried and tested game mechanic um, that enables you, that has had some form of hit before. You can release games quicker than anyone else. Um, and off you go. But I think now, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, for Pocket Gamer and uh, just two days immersed talking to developers. And both from the developer community world and also hypercasual, I, I definitely think that is changing. There are some publishers that that's true. They still will put market potential over game design. But I believe the way hypercasual is going, particularly when we start thinking about the retention, sort of hockey stick in hypercasual, there needs to be a real balance between game design and game art, as well as its sort of market potential, do the numbers stack up? Mm -hmm. So for me, talking that we've already spoken about data, but it's really exciting to work in this generation of um, kind of data-driven creative game design, because mm -hmm. if you're a hyper casual developer and you, you've even got the faintest of my, an idea, you can really quickly test this out on real users to see if this is something that is even worth you putting time and effort into a prototype. Uh, so hypercasual has completely changed the whole concept of game design. But to your question why it's important, I think this is an obvious point to now dive into or just at least link it to user retention. So if you think about a top hypercasual game, day one we might see around say 40% retention, but day seven this drops to 15%. Now, one way that you can obviously improve that is uh, that retention is game design and specifically uh, a good core loop. So the heart of game design, you've got your core mechanics and the gameplay loop. So it's this the main activity that's going to structure the entire design uh, and the players engaging repeatedly to create this looping sequence. And uh, for me, a good core loop, if you look at the hyper-casual games, and for any hyper-casual players out there will know instantly what I mean, but uh, it's basically putting you in this state of flow. So a bit like how Netflix draws you yeah. in and 
with it slightly different for Netflix because it's going to take a bit longer. You're in this, you're kind of hooked, you're fully engaged. The same with hyper casual, but this good core loop, it isn't born from an idea that you just implement and that you build on. It's through kind of constant testing. So you kind of pick an idea that's got potential. You'll build a video ad to test it out on real players. You evaluate the depth you can get off that and round and round you go. So that, for me is really important because there is this day seven challenge in hyper casual uh, that I'm hearing a lot about from all angles. And for me, uh, UA and monetization, that's the second step. But if you haven't nailed down the core game mechanic and game design, then you can have the best team when it comes to execution in terms of UA monetization. But if you don't have that, that hit game, that, core loop that that yeah. some new that you're bringing to game design then it's not really going to make a difference yeah so john uh tell me tell us about what game mechanics mean in the in the context of hyper casual and can you give us some examples of these sure so a uh, game mechanic really simply is just the the action of play right what are you getting the user to do over and over again within the context of the game are you asking them to jump Swerve, fly. Um, so the mechanics in a game are often, you know, set up by the rules of the game. So the challenge in a game would generally come from applying your game mechanics to certain situations. So, for example, like walking around the game is the game mechanic, whereas you know a maze, for example, that's the kind of challenge that you're applying the game mechanic to. The kind of game mechanics. If you look at any hyper casual game, there are lots of different ones, but some kind of core ones. So there's a sort of tap or timing. So if you look at our game, Tiny Cars, you have to um, tap to stop the car so that it doesn't crash, for example. Mm-hmm. Then you'll have a sort of stacking or kind of turning mechanic type game that, again, if you look at sort of tower color, it's throwing balls at a high stack of different shaped columns that you have to knock down. Or there's the sort of classic sort of rising falling mechanic that you know, if you look at a voodoo helix jump, for example, uh, that's fairly similar. I mentioned one earlier, so kind of a swerve mechanic. So it might be just, you know, navigating the ball around a kind of a long track or um, some sort of car. And then again, we spoke earlier about the kind of nostalgic element and, and my memory, certainly from Snake and the Nokia 3310, but some sort of growing mechanic. And today you've got lots of different clones of that original Snake game, but that's another common one. So I think there are lots more, but those are some of the main ones that you'll see in Hypercasual. How do you identify what is a good code loop and how do you validate that what, in your experience, separates a good game from a great one? It's a good question. So what makes a good Hypercasual game? So again, if we go back to a couple of years ago where we're talking about, it's not so much about the the game itself. It's more about, can I market this game? It's about perception. So therefore, it's not really about what the developer thinks about their game or the publisher. It's really about what the data is saying. Can I acquire as many users as possible and get them to... Um, watch a certain number of ads that makes this game profitable. So really that takes the emotion out of it and you just really look at the data. But then what is interesting as well is each of the top publishers has a different angle on what they believe makes a top game. So, you know, some publishers still buy into, it's not about the perception, 
I don't think the quality of their games is as good, but they are charting incredibly highly because it has that mass market appeal. Whereas if you look at the style of some of the other top games in hypercasual, you can just see the quality is really, really high. Games are polished. They almost are merging or could, could be mistaken for a casual game. But in terms of what is going to make it a hit game, it really comes back to process, right? Yeah. And a lot of the mistakes that we see from hyper-casual developers, it's something that actually they're easily solvable. So if you look at some simple mistakes, for example, it could be like a really simple choice of colors. So they're going yeah. against the trends of what we see in market. Well, yeah. again, if the game mechanic's good, but it's the wrong color, we'll be able to pick that up really quickly yeah. in the kind of testing phase. And we'll just see that, you know, purple versus green delivers a much more effective um, kind of LTV and brings the CPI down. Sure. Um, we see, bear in mind a lot of hyper-casual developers, some of them have never built a hyper-casual game before. So one thing they might do is think, oh, I've just seen a great game, I'll simply copy the design. Uh, doesn't necessarily work. Or some of them are still sending in prototypes that are kind of like 2D, generally 2D doesn't work. Um, except maybe in puzzle. I, I, I love mistakes because that's something you learn from. And I think that's the bigger picture of hypercasual is that there's so many developers now pouring into hypercasual because, you know, from a business perspective, that's where you can make money. Maybe Apple are going to change that with Apple Arcade if they can get a lot of these devs over there. But yeah. a lot of the mistakes we see are just born from just people learning how to develop hypercasual games. Sure. Yeah, and you know, just to also dwell a little bit more on the validation process you touched upon, from what I've read, some publishers, they build ads to validate games even before the game is fully built out. Is that something you guys do? What does a typical validation process yeah. of a game look like? So a developer will send us a concept in very different stages, but at the simplest form, they could send us a, a video, APK, um, test flight. You know, videos are, are better. Yeah. So we can just make sure they're building something that, for example, we haven't seen already or tested already. But what happens is they'll send us a video or test flight, and then we'll test the game with real users. So we'll be able to see pretty quickly whether this is something that we can progress to the next stage. But generally, if it is a more advanced prototype, then we'll put it in the Facebook SDK and we'll test this in one country. We'll look at all aspects um, of the game. Mm -hmm. And in particular, we're looking at day one, day seven, average session time. Um, and depending on the game performance, that initial process could take five to 10 days. Each publisher is going to have their own metrics or performance thresholds that you need to meet. And then it's really a question of working with the developer and feedback and making changes. Mm -hmm. And really at that point, that's when the developer and the publisher will get to a stage really of, of then negotiating sort of contract terms and how they're going to work together before you then proceed to the next phase, which is where yeah. you get onto a lot more heavier testing. So the game design team are going to recommend a pre-launch roadmap, uh, improve yeah. the gameplay, new features, A-B testing, a monetization team will, will get involved and there'll be various mediation SDKs to implement. And if you don't have them in them already, you know, the major video SDKs like Vanguard, Colony, Unity, etc., along with the likes of Iron Source and Mopub. Yeah. So there's the, the very clear um, 
that's what I love about hybrid casual. It's not just data focus. It's all about process. And for me, that excites me. If I'm a developer, for me, the, the kind of publishers I would look for are the ones that they're almost like a tech stars. They're like a tech company combined with a business accelerator. They are there to help you build your own business. So if you have an idea, just start talking to them as early as possible. Sure. And something you didn't explicitly mention or didn't underscore was how quick a lot of this process is especially when you contrast it with traditional game development, a lot of traditional games can take months or years to develop. And, you know, just the process of validation of hypercasual games can be far, far quicker. Can you give us a sense of what kind of timelines that validation process you just described can look like? Sure. So that, that, that entire process from kind of submitting a, you know, an idea to launching your game worldwide, that can happen in six to eight weeks. Wow. That just blows people's minds. But for me, again, it's, it's super exciting. Uh, we'll talk about where this is going to go. But for me, that has implications on basically if you're a content marketer and you're thinking about where can I quickly execute marketing campaigns, yeah. Hypercasual can compete with how long it takes to create a TV ad, for example, yeah. let alone other categories of like yeah. games that could take 12, 18, 24 months to develop and yeah. off you go. I, I just think that six to eight weeks and the amount that is happening behind the, the scenes is just incredible. One of the things that contributes to the massive success of hypercasual games, as you touched upon earlier, is the massive scale of user acquisition that is possible with hypercasual. Uh, it's oftentimes I've seen economics that are an order of magnitude better than casual games or other genres of games uh, when, when you compare hypercasual versus other genres. What would you say contributes to this order of magnitude differential in efficiencies? This could be cost of acquiring a user, but, a CP, or, but also an IPM, and you can touch upon why that's important and what contributes to this sort of massive differential in economics. Again, in kind of simple economic terms, hyper casual games are a commodity. It's a product with an addressable global market. Uh, and each hyper casual game is effectively doesn't significantly differ from others that have preceded it. You see some great games that are very quickly copied. So that, that's why for hyper casual sort of precise targeting, it's not necessarily as important as, as a low CPI because the, the people that we're trying to acquire could be pretty much anyone who hasn't played a mobile game regardless of age of income. So for me, it really, you hear, you've mentioned it already, you hear sort of IPM, so installs per thousand impressions talked about a lot in the world of hypercasual. Um, so you need the lowest CPI, the highest conversion, and therefore you need a high IPM. So you want as many as possible to lower the CPI. So, so IronSource released some figures on this and to put it into perspective, in casual games, you might see an IPM of around four, so four installs for every thousand impressions versus a, a top hyper-casual game, you might see an IPM of 40. Yeah. Um, so that, that's 10x. So that's why hyper-casual um, can buy users with a lower CPI versus a, a casual game and still get the same eCPM in the waterfall that we're, we're bidding on. So that's why you've seen this explosion of hypercasual in the charts because we can compete with any other big game launches so long as the, the maths back out. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating talking to friends that work in other genres of games. 
the impact that these hyper casual launches are having on their own game launches because they can just go up and just launch and cannibalize a market buying it. We're talking like 10, 15, 20 cent CPI versus one to five to ten dollar cpis that yeah. other gaming companies may be buying to to, to be understand it really comes down to that yeah. ipm number yeah and you touch upon why that ipm is 10 times what a casual game maker can achieve to put it differently if a casual game or a strategy game were to say i'm going to mimic hyper casual creators exactly and they're going to create inspired by what you've done and i'm sure at least somebody would have tried that would they be able to achieve that sort of IPMs? I'm trying to understand what about the ad creatives results in like a 10x differential. Hypercasual, you precisely know the LTV and CPI that we need to hit to break even on yeah. day seven. Okay. Versus like a, a mid-core title, which you may allow like half a year to break even. So as a result, the way that you deal with um, UA channels is, is totally different. So, you know, if you've got a mid-core game, you might invest a bunch of money in, in Facebook, for example, come back in six months time, and then you can start figuring out all your different cohorts and adjust CPIs, et cetera. But in hyper-casual, we just don't have that luxury. Um, everything that we do is based around user-level impression revenue data. So we know the exact value of user A, versus user B. We know the exact value that we're willing to bid on a user, not just by ad network, but by a specific app and a placement within that app, let's say Iron Source. So it's the level of sophistication that we can apply, uh, but with the advantage that we just know, we know the answer to the sum that we're trying to achieve. Up front, we don't have to wait six months to figure it out. And then on your point in terms of creative, for hypercasual, generally, it's sort of video playable ads specifically that are driving most of the revenue. And you'll see how drastically different they are creatively compared to other genres because you are effectively playing the game. You would see no difference from a playable ad versus the game. Versus if you look at a lot of ads for, like, say, AAA games, the ad you're watching almost looks like a movie, and then you go play the game, and it's like, hang on a minute, that doesn't look anything like. Yeah. what you've just advertised. So I think that closeness between the ad creative and the game itself also res- results in a much higher install rate um, versus perhaps other genres. Yeah, so in some sense, the sheer simplicity of hyper-casual games leads to a very close correspondence in the ad versus the game itself, which I imagine can result in the tremendously high performance. And of course, like you said, that married with this very, very granular data, even at the user level, lets you target and acquire these users much, much more effectively. That's what it sounds like it's happening. Since you do seem to have that granular level of data, would you say that programmatic channels become much more effective for hyper-casual? What's been your experience with programmatic I also ask because being able to crack programmatic, I understand it's very heavily dependent on having very granular data so you can bid for new impressions, basically based on the users and the propensity to make future revenue for you. And since you have that level of understanding, I would imagine 
programmatic, you would be in a very bad position to capitalize on. I'm curious what your perspective has been on programmatic and what your experience has been. On the one hand, we are in a very strong position because thanks to you know the likes of Tengen and IronSource and Mopub, we're able to make every impression count and aggregate vast amounts of data coming in from you know different uh, network supply sources uh, and analyze everything from demand source, ad placement, currency, country, etc. Um, when it comes to pr programmatic, so having all of that 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 data should be a great place to start. But there, at, at times when we've been testing various DSPs, there is a pricing problem. If you think about the CPIs that we are typically looking to acquire users at, you know, ten cents, twenty cents, obviously varies by country. A lot of C, a lot of DSPs typically are asking for, um, let's say, like a dollar minimum when it comes to sort of acquisition costs. So that at times can be a problem because the basic maths um, don't work. So a lot of the acquisition um, is still being done manually, but automated with a lot of ad networks and influencer marketing companies and social platforms like, like TikTok. And I think the other challenge, we, we've, we've certainly tested a few, um, and I, I've got my eye on a couple of startups in this space, but I, I think the way it's going when I look at colleagues in other gaming genres that are successfully deploying programmatic, I think where we're going to land in hypercasual is uh, working with some of these startups that are offering effectively a bidder as a service that we can start feeding all of our campaign data through that's linked to our cost aggregation platform, uh, our analytics suite, and doing something a little bit more custom rather than just kind of taking a seat on one of the bigger, I would say, you know, there are some great DSPs out there, but they're probably built for brand. Um, and then some of the more performance DSPs we've also tested, but still, I don't think... Uh, for now, we still are probably a lot more heavily working with ad network social platform versus having picked like one DSP and funneling all of our buying through through a DSP. And that certainly seems like an opportunity for the right company. And if, you know, did mention that you have your eyes on a couple of companies that could be capitalized, poised to capitalize on this. Definitely something that I'm curious about, and definitely something I'm going to be keeping an eye, eye open for. Yeah. So, John, you've worked on a lot of games. You've just seen this category emerge just over the last couple of years to a very, very significant size. What have you seen recently that has surprised you about hypercasual? It could just could be either with regard to a specific game mechanic or the way data is used. What what, what surprised you recently? I think what's what surprised the industry is, to your earlier point, how, how hypercasual just keeps going because people just think it's going to uh, just disappear. Um, and it's not going to disappear. I think it's just going to evolve. So I think what surprised me and excites me is coming from the developer community, the, the way that you've got different genres of developers that have never built a hyper-casual game, but bringing their knowledge from casual, from I met a great developer that builds puzzle-based games, but have this actually kind of study physics at university. Yeah. I'm getting really excited about how we can start bringing a great gameplay and depth to hyper-casual games. That if we fast forward 12 months, I'd like to believe there's going to be a really strong category of hyper-casual games that look very different to, to what you see now. Sure. I think the speed at which um, our technology partners are moving is incredible. So we've already discussed a little bit about uh, 
sort of our obsession with like impression level revenue data, but I think it's going to go like a step further as it were. So it's not just about a specific network and placement and creative. I think what we're getting, these discussions are already happening, but actually seeing linking all of our user acquisition monetization data and bringing it even earlier and tying it to specific changes that we're able to make in a certain country when it comes to, to gameplay. So Again, everything we do is powered by data, but actually an even earlier stage to be able to tie just the slightest change to game design to, you know, that bottom right hand corner on our spreadsheet in terms of net profit per install, for example. I think we will get to that point where we can measure absolutely everything um, that we're doing directly tied to net revenue, net profit. Sure. And certainly, I think that level of granularity, I can see how that's set to advance. This also reminds me, one of the developments that's happened in the last couple of months, which also ties into the idea of cross-pollination that you touched upon is that one of the bigger players in the hyper-casual game space today is someone that started off as an ad network, uh, AppLove and Lion Studios. So they were basically in the ad tech space and they are among the bigger makers of hyper-casual games today, right? So, which to me was surprising at the time, but it's increasingly understandable given the size of the hyper-casual market. How does an ad tech company coming into the gaming space impact someone like you that's also looking to do deals with this particular ad tech company? So you're clearly competing against somebody that's potentially buying on their entry. How do you look at this particular development Do you see more crossover like this happening as you go forward? Do you think this is good for the space? Yeah, there's lots of elements in that if we unpick them. So uh, I think if you look at hyper casual now, and certainly when we launched OMA, this was very much in our thinking. So there's kind of two types of publishers. There's publishers that hyper casual publishers that purely just focus on the ad side, right? Just UA monetization. And there's others that, then focus on the other side. It's all about game design and the game art that then kind of fuels and make the ads ad piece a lot more effective. So I think if you look at what Adam and the team have done an incredible job is they fuse the two, right? They've got their, their yeah. games publishing arm in terms of Lion, but then they also have this incredible user acquisition platform to then publish their games on. We use AppLovin, they're a great partner, but there are also some other, you know, if you think about Iron Source and their recent valuation, it's a yeah. similar size in terms of market cap as, as AppLovin. Um, the team at Snap, actually, for our first launch into Idle with Idle World, they were one of the top performing partners. So I don't think if you don't own your own kind of ad network that you're a disadvantage, but I think this new breed, and as I said, when we built Oma, we wanted to build this blend of um, not ad tech, but a technology business that has automation at the heart of everything it does of which kind of user acquisition monetization is part of that but also blending it with a business accelerator because if you think about the lifeblood the oxygen of hyper casual it is developers you know whether you're doing it in-house or partnering and what these developers really need is their own tech stars they are running their own business so they need someone that's got their best interests at heart that's going to help them grow that's going to be able to plug them into their own kind of data analytics suite to help them design better games so i certainly don't think you're at a disadvantage if you don't have that the other element in there of course is well 
where are you most likely to acquire a hyper-casual user? It's from other hyper-casual games. So uh, obviously Lion have a great suite of games, but there are lots of other uh, hyper-casual studios, publishers, that we acquire users from, they're acquiring users from our games. It's no different to you know any, any other genre, right? Where you're gonna acquire a player that, that likes RPG games, other RPG games. Um, so that element is nothing new. Yeah. But what I expect to see happening is in this sort of automation tech stack that this new era of hyper-casual publishers are building out, um, having their own in-house competencies, so back to the last point about programmatic, having your own in-house competencies and way of doing user acquisition is going to be a key differentiator. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's as with anything, we have access to the same networks as all the other publishers, but it's yeah. going to be about how we can neatly tie together everything right. we're doing, bring in, you know, we have our own DMP in-house, so it's not just about having that data, but how are all the tools that we have built on top of partners like Tengen, Game Analytics, Mopub Source? how can we then execute yeah. on that more effectively than you know, the team at Lion? Sure, and that also speaks to the level of sophistication that you alluded to in your data and how you use data for, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, John, and how do you see hyper-casual, evolving, mature, over the next couple of years, you know, because 860 million MAU is huge. Where do you see this going from here? So I think, again, some people are saying it's, it's going to shrink. I actually see a lot of green pasture ahead. So if we look at China, um, you know, roughly 800 million mobile phone users, 240 iOS, and the rest Android. You know, right now, China has been a tricky market with the ever-changing government legislation, locking down licenses for nine months and they opened up and they closed it again. Not necessarily a problem for hyper-casual, more affecting IP-based games, but that said, the legislation is still being defined. So for me, if you think you know, China iOS is the same size as roughly the US and it's still early stage, I just see a huge amount of growth in China, in Asia. We're also hearing lots of rumors about certain companies outside of hyper-casual that have got aspirations to move into hyper-casual, but one that I know is moved into hyper-casual is Bike Dance. So again, the more you have these huge tech companies with things like you know TikTok in their armory moving into hyper-casual, yeah. you're just gonna see more great games in the market, and particularly given the complexities and the uniqueness of certainly the Chinese UA market, not to mention it's like 50 different Android app stores to start with in China. I think, the more you're going to start to see, you know, chart topping hyper casual games in that market is going to bring more and more of the Chinese user base online. So that really excites me. Yes, you might see some stagnation or decreased level of growth in Western markets. But as I said, Asia is very interesting. We spoke about it earlier, how UA monetization tools are going to continue to develop, give even more depth in terms of what and how we can measure what exactly everything that's happening in our games is really exciting. We spoke earlier about the investment money moving in. We're seeing more global game studios moving into hyper-casual. So if you think back to 2016 with Ubisoft, with Ketchat, more recently, they acquired the idol studio Green Panda. We've got Netmarble being fairly loud um, and trying to move into the hyper-casual space. You've got Tabtail, you've got Gizmart. Um, and, and for me, it makes sense, purely from a business perspective, because you have a great overlap between hyper-casual and casual players in terms of players that 
also play IP-based games. So versus every time you launch a new title, spending $5 to acquire new, new users. If you have a hyper-casual studio in your portfolio, well, with the level of detail we have, you know that exact tipping point where someone is you know, migrating from hyper-casual games to IP-based games. Um, so I just see M&A in this space and the big studios as a, a really smart user acquisition play, completely separate to the team and technology you'll be acquiring that I think you can absolutely apply to your kind of casual UA stack. And then again, we touched on it earlier, but I just see hypercasual as a mass marketing channel. So I honestly believe in a couple of years time, if I'm Universal Pictures, and I've got a new movie launching, well, alongside creating a TV spot in every single market yeah. for a very low cost. And within six to eight weeks, I can have a mass market hyper casual game slash TV ad out there around the world exposed to millions of millions of consumers, not gamers, consumers. I can just see hyper casual just almost if I go back to my agency days, it's just going to be on the media plan. It's just like buying your out of home TV. Yeah. I think brands are already spending heavily in, in terms of rewarded video. We see a lot of brand performance ads in our games, but I just think the way brands are now going to start embracing hyper casual is similar to you know, how they've jumped into esports, for example. Um, so that really excites me as well. Wow. Yeah. And that just given the sheer scale that hyper casuals already attained, doesn't surprise me as to the outlook you see for hyper casual over the years ahead. And absolutely excited to follow along and, of course, to see what you do, John. I do know we're coming up on time. So as we wrap, I would love for you to tell our listeners a bit more about how they can find out more about you, how they can find out about Oma Games. You can find us in the App Store under Oma Games, H-O-M-A Games. You can see uh, our current portfolio of live games. Um, you can check out the team on LinkedIn. We've got a team of kind of 30 plus people uh, in Paris, which is our HQ. A really great, talented and uh, multicultural team um, powering all of our hit games. Um, you can find various podcasts or YouTube videos of the team speaking at different events. And you know, feel free to just reach out and find me on LinkedIn and whatever aspect of you know, hyper casual games you want to talk about from how do I get into it as a, from a developer's perspective to, you know, you, you've already got a game and you want some help in terms of publishing or anyone from the investment community that really wants to understand the hyper casual landscape and how to navigate it, the kind of questions to ask. We get a lot of inbound activity from potential investors and larger M&A teams at studios wanting to find out more. So super happy to chat to anyone that just wants to learn more about hypercasual games. You know, hit me up on LinkedIn and I'm sure there'll be a link from the podcast to yeah. my details. So just drop yeah. me a line. Wonderful, John. Yes, of course. Uh, we'll link to uh, your website, your games, your LinkedIn in the show notes to this podcast. But for now, I know we've come up on time. So I want to say thank you for taking the time to be on the show. We really appreciate you taking the time. I'm very, very excited to put this out into the world very soon. Thank you, John. No, thank you. And uh, thanks for everyone that's tuned in to listen. Hey, guys, this is Shamant again. Before you go, I have a small but very important favor to ask. If you get any pleasure or inspiration from this episode, could you please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform? be it iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This podcast is very much a labor of love. 
it makes no money and each episode takes many many hours to put together when you leave a rating or write a review it not only means a great deal of encouragement to me but it also supports getting the word out about how things grow thank you again for listening and i look forward to seeing you with the next episode thank you